粤语白白讲播客节目，白国荣、白文杰同你论尽粤语语言及流行文化，齐齐白白讲。This is Chatty Cantonese, where we chat about all things related to learning and teaching Cantonese, with a little bit of pop culture thrown in. 大家随时可以到我哋嘅网站 chattycantonese.com 揾到所有对话嘅文本同埋英文翻译。As always, you can find transcriptions of our conversations on our website, chattycantonese.com, as well as English translations. 今集有我哋同三一大学历史助理教授、剑桥大学出版社发行《中国方言与民族主义一八六零至一九六零》嘅作者谭吉拿博士讨论嘅第二部分。呢一集我哋讨论喺教学同埋学术界里面普通话同粤语之间嘅关系，以及全球语言景观下英语嘅强大势力。This episode features the second half of our discussion with Dr. Jean Ann Tam, Associate Professor of History at Trinity University and author of Dialect and Nationalism in China, 1860-1960, from Cambridge University Press. In this episode, we talk about the relationship between Mandarin and Cantonese in teaching and academia, as well as English's immense power in the global linguistic landscape. There's a larger discussion, I'd say, within Chinese studies about the role that Mandarin plays. As and I should preface this, Anglophone Chinese studies, so people writing in English about Chinese culture. The vast majority of people, their sort of their quote unquote research language is Mandarin, and I know you know scholars like Ray Chow have pointed out that there is this tendency whenever we write, we romanize in in Mandarin pinyin. You know, you're lucky if you have a publisher who also lets you use both not only Chinese characters but also alternative forms of romanization. I I, I know that's that it depends on who you're working with. So I'm just curious if you can share a little bit about your own perspective on this language dynamic in the field in terms of. Mandarin versus everything else, and whether you see any change or or sort of shifts in terms of how scholars are thinking about this. So I, I want to answer this in the in the aggregate, but I but I want to start with talking about my own struggle with this, and it involved an enormous amount of like two a.m. editing before my book was due, and then editing back. And I be, I came to this realization before my book manuscript, the final one, was due that. There was something very wrong about the fact that I had romanized everything in my book as Putonghua, right, as Mandarin, when I am talking about people who are deeply invested in a multilingual China. And so then I went back and I was like, no, I need to change it all. So I started with the epilogue, right, where I talk about contemporary examples, and I focus. I, I have a pretty substantive section on Cantonese, and I changed everything to to Duping. And then I'm like, well, now I need to go back in time. And then I, all of a sudden, I'm looking at this person. And I'm like, wait, this person spoke. Four or five different Fangyan. How do I know what how he would have pronounced his name, right? And he probably would have pronounced his name a number of different ways. And there's one character who shows up a lot in my book. His name in Mandarin is Zhao Yanren, and he actually delightfully romanizes his name a bunch of different ways. And I and I whenever he decides to do it a particular way, I do it the way that he does it. But most of my the people I'm talking about in my book don't do that. Right, and I'm like, how do I even know if I like if this guy is from Ningbo and I, you know, sort of transliterate his name in Ningbo? How do I even know that's what it sounded like 150 years ago? And so I tied myself in knots, and finally, I'm just like, this is this is unsustainable. And so I end up going with Mandarin、um, with a with with a few examples of Hong Kong newspapers where I where I、um, where I don't. But 
it was something I really struggled with because I didn't want to put Mandarin as the, as the sole language here, but I also didn't want to project onto anybody what I thought they would be speaking or how they might romanize their name. And so I don't feel great about my decision, but I didn't feel great about any other decision. And also I had to have some consistency and I didn't know how to explain to Cambridge University Press. So I'll start there sort of with the smaller struggle that I had. But thinking about this question in a, in a bigger sense, I do think that this emphasis on Mandarin has shaped the field in that it places more emphasis and value on not just like the PRC or Taiwan over spaces like Hong Kong or diaspora communities where, where the, the main man language is in Mandarin. It also places a more value on a very statist perspective of both the PRC and Taiwan. It sort of presumes, in other words, that the people we want to include in the voices we want to elevate in our research are people who have the power and privilege to speak this language, right? It privileges the center. I do see that changing. Um, I think, I think, Y'all are really at the forefront of this, which I think is really exciting. Raymond, your program in Cantonese at UBC and others that are, are really, I think, getting a lift right now and are, and are um, show that, that people understand that the other Chinese languages are not peripheral. They're spoken by tens of millions of people. I think there is a, a new sort of renewed interest in Hong Kong studies. And I think that that has placed, it's, it's, I think it's made a lot of scholars realize that Hong Kong is not a peripheral space. It's a space worth studying in its own right, but also it's central to the China story. And that has pushed a new emphasis on learning Cantonese. I think there's also an emphasis, um, and this has been happening for a while now, but I think it's starting to bleed into language learning, is that we can't tell good histories and good scholarship by only looking at people who, again, have the power and privilege to speak Mandarin, right? That we have to be speaking to these other communities on their own terms. And that, I think, is it's it's a recognition that speaking the language of a people of where, where they are is a good way to, for us to better tell the stories of these communities. I'm not entirely sure that the infrastructure that we have in Anglophone China Studies has caught up with this, right? We are still talking about languages that have power and privilege, while on the one hand, the, the sort of the power of Mandarin dwarfs languages like Cantonese and Shanghainese, but on the other hand, the power of Cantonese and Shanghainese and Taiwanese dwarfs very much the power of other Chinese languages spoken, right? And so there is still an unevenness. Academia has in a really unfortunate and frustrating way of reinforcing power dynamics, I think a lot, pre-existing power dynamics. But I do at least see a recognition in our field that only learning Mandarin is going to limit the kinds of stories we can tell and the voices we can elevate. Uh 我們亦都不應該想我們是否在這個鞏固的地位
學習外語嘅人士都話啊，你學中文啊，你學咗普通話先啦、啊，然之後再學其他嘅方言啦、啊、咁樣。咁呢個我覺得係即係需要我哋反思去諗嘅，因為我哋都有好多學生佢哋堅持話。我唔需要學普通話，我淨係要學粵語。但係咧，粵語都係中文，我點解要學咗普通話先咧？咁即係我覺得係大家嗰個思想都需要改變。係 Cam，Raymond your reaction makes makes a lot of sense. So the idea that there there is this immense help that studying Fangyin brings to sort of literary research and other forms of research, but in the process of sort of teaching people these Fangyin, whether it's Cantonese or, or others, there's often a requirement that, oh, you have to go learn Mandarin first, and then you can go study Cantonese. Or in, I've seen here in Taiwan, then you can go study Taiwanese. And there's this question is, is it actually just reinforcing the power of Mandarin or sort of that, that main language and then other languages or Fangyin are seen as sort of branching off from it, so it's almost like there there's sort of larger systemic questions or issues that that also have to be addressed simply in the process of language education, right? I know when I learned Cantonese, there were two versions of Cantonese. You could learn Cantonese as with no ch- background in any Chinese language, and then there was there was、um, Cantonese for Mandarin speakers, and so those two tracks exist. So I think you're right. I think there's a structural issue here, but the philosophy here I think is one that we should question. I don't want to be anti-Mandarin. <laughs> you know, it is a language that a an enormous number of people speak, and it's an important language to learn. But saying that we have to learn Mandarin before learning Cantonese seems like saying we have to learn Spanish before we can learn Portuguese, right? These are languages spoken by different communities and both have value in learning from and connecting with those communities. And so there, there's sort of there's the there's the philosophical question, which I think we should really question, and then there's the structural question, which I, I think emerges in part from pre-existing power dynamics, but also sort of the the the, the The questions of like who are the students who are learning these languages, right?、Um, and so I think once we start questioning the philosophy, then we can start, I think, reaching new audiences and reaching new students to try and push back against that a little bit. Well, and I'm actually curious, sort of hearing you talk about that because you you are right. Most of the sort of curricula here in Taiwan are aimed at people who already speak Mandarin because most of the The educational materials are written for people who can read Mandarin or read formal written Chinese, and I, I think that writing actually is a big Big part to play in this, in that Fangyin, there's sort of there's this orality that people project onto them, and people want to teach things that you can read or that you can have a, a written translation of. And so, even if you literize a Fangyin next to it, there's going to be a translation in either English or in sort of standard written Chinese that sort of creates this thing. And Cantonese, I think, at least there. Tendency now, more people are, are coming around Yutping as sort of a, as a romanization that people are embracing. But then you also have a fairly developed colloquial writing system. Whereas one thing I, I have noticed that's really interesting with, with Taiwanese is there's still an ongoing debate among intellectuals about whether it should be written as a romanized form that existed for a number of decades, or whether it should be written with Chinese characters. And there's still a lot of discussion on this. So. What's fascinating is like this process is still ongoing, and so we could talk about this as scholars. But it's almost like telling people to go study these things. You're also jumping in as these questions of standardization are an ongoing question, which I think should also be a reminder to us that that's the same with Mandarin, right? Mandarin is also changing and shifting too. Where it's not like it's this perfect、yeah. thing right there for us to go learn. Well, and and two reactions to that that I think are so fascinating. The first one is I think that this is something that. Extends to language learning generally. I don't have numbers in front of me, but I would be fascinated to see how much 
language pedagogical material in the world exists and how much of it is based in English, right? Um, and my guess is that disproportionately language learning materials for, for speakers of second languages presume that there is an English language background and because of the hegemony of English worldwide, right? And the hegemony of English speakers worldwide. So that right there is a fascinating structural question. As far as the question of script, so I'm, I'm actually writing an article about this right now that will hopefully be out in the next soon. It'll be in an edited volume, but it's essentially about how the sort of the way that script reform evolved in the PRC had the effect of presuming that there is a correct pronunciation of Chinese characters or sinographs, and that correct pronunciation is Putonghua, it's Mandarin, and that everything else are alternative pronunciations of these characters. And I and I call this the unscripting of Fangyim because it is this sort of deliberate wrenching away an indigenous script that that has been tethered to these languages for a very long time and sort of and and presuming that they are almost exclusively oral and the reason this matters so much is because we often presume that languages right with the power that comes with a language are have scripts right that can that can properly render them into writing and and because that infrastructure has been missing in part because of not entirely because of state power but in part because of state power right because that infrastructure is missing we don't have that that clear like how do we write cantonese right how do we write taiwanese how do we write sichuanese and the reason the answer is well sinographs, right? Because that's how we've done it for a really long time. And the reason that feels off is because we often think that there is this one pronunciation of the sinograph. And actually, Raymond, you inspired me to include this in the paper because you had mentioned at some point how much it matters that there are so many input systems for keyboards for writing sinographs, for writing like sinitic characters that presume you speak you, you speak Mandarin because it presumes pinyin, right? And Jutping, and there are Cantonese input methods, there are Cantonese input systems, but they don't have the breadth and reach of pinyin ones. I know in Taiwan, there are also Bopomofo ones. Like there are other ones that exist, but really the pinyin input systems really uh, uh, like occupy a pretty hegemonic space here. And when we look in the People's Republic of China in particular, it's really difficult to get other input. It's it's difficult to find other input systems. And aside from Cantonese and Shanghainese, where I think they really do exist, right? Like I don't know, I don't know if there's a Sichuanese input system. There might be, but I don't think there is. And so it it again reinforces this idea that characters are supposed to be pronounced a particular way. Yeah. No, and I, it also makes me think about the fact that we do, as people who, who are interested in languages, we do have the flexibility to accept multiple readings or, or ways of using Chinese characters. If, if you've ever, for people, for instance, who study both Mandarin and Japanese, to deal with the fact, oh, these Chinese characters are used differently in two different contexts, and they sound very differently, especially in Japanese. Japanese has so many different readings. That's almost an analogy that I, that I wish people would talk about more. A, that Chinese is not the only language that uses Chinese characters, and B, that it that once you recognize that there's this flexibility of how characters can sound and be used, when you then take that and look at the Fongin, I think it then becomes easier to accept their flexibility yeah. and their variability. And, and it's really, it, it's a it's sort of a revolutionary script in that way. And I think sometimes 
the way that it has been treated as sort of being a, a, a like tethered to a nation, a national language and a national script has lost sight of its its very long history of being a linguistically flexible script. So thank you so much for sharing so much with us today. I feel like this has been a really freewheeling, interesting discussion. Would you like to talk a little bit about suggestions that you have for people who are either interested not only just in learning Cantonese, but learning more about sort of the scholarship around the, this topic of, of thonging or, or sort of how language and identity and power are related? So we really yeah, so I, as somebody who is, is still feels like a beginner in Cantonese, I feel like I'm the last person you should ask for language learning except for use it and don't be afraid to make a fool of yourself, which I, I is, is advice that I give and fail at because I'm so afraid to make a fool of myself that I don't speak. Cantonese as much as I as I wish I did. Um, I think being able to travel might change that. But as far as those who are sort of interested in scholarship or looking at research questions and, and related to histories of, of language and identity, I wish if I could go back in time that I had started learning multiple languages earlier and had not been so daunted by it. I wish my Cantonese was better than it was. But I, I'm glad at the very least that I, before I started writing this book, questioned the, or at least thought about the limits of Mandarin in completing my research, um, because I think even sort of being able to conversationally listen to some Cantonese and read it, right? We had talked a lot about like Cantonese literature. There's a big movement of that in, in, in history and being able to, to grapple with that and read that or read transcripts, I think was, was, was introduced me to new voices that would have otherwise been unavailable to me, I think. I guess the only other thing that I, I hope to see or like I would encourage scholars of language to do is that I think it's easy to look at the world right now. And once we start grappling with questions of power and identity is to feel really hopeless <laughs> or perhaps hopeless is the wrong word. Perhaps there are scholars of language out there who think that sort of like the hegemony of one language is a good thing in which case but but what those who feel hopeless and those who feel like this is this is what the world should look like i think both see linguistic hegemony and power and sort of standardization as inevitable and regardless of sort of how you emotionally feel about that i would encourage scholars of language to question what's inevitable if we imagine more a more diverse array of possible futures I think that new empirical realities will come to light in a way that won't if we just sort of presume the inevitable. I don't know if that's advice or what I hope to see, but th these, I really hope that scholars from all different disciplines really begin to sort of grapple with these questions because I think the field is small at this point in terms of Chinese language scholarship, and, but it's very interdisciplinary. And I think that that is to our benefit. So I, I hope that, that we continue to be that way. 你最近有没有看了一些承接这个气势,好看又有助推动同业发展的书呢? Are there any books you've read recently that have gotten you excited that you see riding that wave and helping push this field forward? So I'll mention two. The first I already mentioned once, Hong Xu's Silencing Shanghai, I think is a beautiful reflection of how not just political power, but also things like 
class and indigeneity affect questions of language and power. The other is, and, and this is forthcoming, I just know of this person's work, is Gerald Roche, who has actually written extensively about minoritized Tibetan languages, where we see a similar sort of thing where we presume there's one Tibetan language, but in fact, there are many Tibetan languages that are experiencing sort of language loss. But he, I think, he is my model for thinking about possible multiple more just futures. And so I know he has a book coming out, hopefully sometime soon. But in the meantime, he has written a number of articles on this topic and the necropolitics of language. And I highly recommend his work. Follow him on Twitter. It's great. <laughs> so I just want to tack on two books that I think would be really helpful that are specific to Cantonese. And also they're technically a little older, but I still think would be really helpful, especially for people listening to this who might not be academics, but want sort of an entryway to thinking about some of these questions. One is a book called Cantonese as Written Language, The Growth of a Written Chinese Vernacular, and that's by Don Snow. Great. <laughs> I, I love it because I think it's really approachable as an academic text. He does a great job at finding really interesting examples of sort of texts. And he even has this great appendix where he shows these things of, of what written Cantonese looks like, what percentage is, you know, overlaps with sort of standard written Chinese or Mandarin, and what percentage is really just Cantonese specific characters. So if you've been listening to our podcast, and you've been wondering, like, what do you guys mean by written Cantonese? I would point you towards that book, because it's also just a fun history. And I think he does a great job at sort of blending history and sort of linguistic research. The other one that I'll recommend is it's it's still academic, but it's more essayistic. It's Ray Chow is not like a native speaker. I, I think it's just really, really interesting, thought-provoking work. And Ray Chow draws on her own experiences with Cantonese and sort of her own childhood in, in Hong Kong, as well as a lot of big theoretical names who who but but I think she still makes them approachable by bringing in versatile examples from her own life that form this really great dialogue with these bigger philosophical questions about language and power and sort of the idea that every language sort of has this possibility or this potential to usurp or dominate another language. And it's really, I think, gets back to that question that you brought up about historical contingency. But there's just some really great examples specific to Cantonese that are in there that I really think people who listen would enjoy. Can I push two more books? I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. That, that are that are actually neither of which are about Cantonese or Chinese languages at all, but I think are are hugely really stick with my head. The first is the fall of language in the age of English, which is just really, it's um, Minai Mizumura's book. There's an English translation of it now. It was written in Japanese. That question looks at, at, at sort of global linguistic hegemony in a way that I think is powerful and brilliant. And the other is, I, and it's only because I just recently read this and it really sticks in my head, is Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands La Frontera. There she has a an essay in there called... I'm trying to remember the name of it, but there is, a, I think it's How to Tame a Wild Tongue is the name of it, but it's entirely about how language grafts onto identity in a way that is, that that book is very, whereas the fall of language in the age of English is sort of, it's, 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 it's a wake up call. Gloria Anzaldúa's work is empowering. Like it's really exciting. So I would recommend those two as well. Mm. 好,非常好,那我就承接你們既然講開書呢,其實我都有書想介紹的。
誒冇幾耐呢，跟住圖書館呢又話誒、哎、我要返嗰本書啊，又又有人要借啊，咁樣我啱啱又再借嚟借去借咗好多次，咁啊所以我都睇過唔止一次啊。咁啊另外呢，我都有兩本書想介紹嘅，一本呢就係、是、其實 Jenna 呢，佢本來都有寫寫咗喺度嘅，同我哋都有關嘅，就係、是、呢 Jane Griffiths 嘅 Speak Not 啊。咁我哋最近呢都有合作嘅機會啦。咁啊 James 呢，咁其實佢係加拿大嘅環誒環球郵報嘅，係駐香港嘅記者嚟嘅。咁但係佢呢，亦都係誒喺好多方面，特別喺歷史啊或者同語言嗰啲佢都有所研究。咁佢寫呢本書呢，就基本上就係講呢三個喺過去被認為係方言嘅嘅歷史嘅故事嘅，包括威爾斯話啦、粵語啦，咁同埋夏威夷話，即係呢，佢哋呢嗰個語言嘅地位呢，都係喺度掙扎緊嘅，或者係過去呢，亦都。經歷咗好多，咁所以咧呢啲故事你其實當一本小説睇咧，但係一個歷史嘅事實，其實、呃、我我睇嘅時候好感動嘅，即係睇到誒嗰、呃那個語言個變化啦，即係、呃、受到好多嘅因素去影響。咁、呃、另外一個咧就係、是、我啱啱咧喺 Twitter 度發現嘅，咁呢個咧我可能都要大家咧可能幫我去睇下呢本書，其實係咪誒佢嗰個內容啦？咁但係我睇佢相誒嘅介紹，我都覺得幾有趣嘅。如果大家唔介意咧。我會用英文講咗佢嗰個嘅嗰、那個嘅撮要啊，介紹佢嘅內容，咁大家睇下係咪同我哋今日講嘅比較關係啦？呢本書呢，個作者呢係 Mariana Newning， 咁佢係德國嘅作者，佢嗰本書呢就叫《Sound Meaning Shape: The Phonologies Way Jane Gong The Twin Language Study and Language Planning》啊，咁中文呢就係音義型語言研究同埋語言規劃之間嘅音韻學家藝變工。咁佢嘅書嘅內容咧，我好快講一講啦。誒、um, ，one of the leading proponents of the radical linguistic reforms in 20th century China， 誒，魏建功 remains hardly known in the West。This book describes how Wei， who was rooted in traditional philology and conceptualizing language as a tool， helped to promulgate a standard language， led the compilation of the world's most popular dictionary， and helped to drive script reform。While these measures were characterized as violent intervention in the Chinese language sphere,、uh, Ngai Jingong's careful negotiating of linguistic description and political prescription illustrates how they also may have been steps、um, that helped to achieve linguistic self-determination. 咁我就係睇呢個介紹，我覺得幾有趣啦。咁誒呢本係新書嚟嘅，咁我都會擺喺呢個我哋個節目嘅介紹嗰度，大家可以睇翻。Wow, so they're just So many good books right now. I, I feel like it's it's an embarrassment of riches, which is very exciting. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think that that perhaps things up. So thank you so much for joining us on Chatty Cantonese this week. We are sort of so excited to have had the opportunity to speak with you, and we can't wait to see not only your forthcoming article but also sort of future research. I was this was conversation was so much fun. It was so delightful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, 多谢晒你 ，Gina. So it's great seeing you again and talk, just talk. 多谢多谢，唔使客气。欢迎大家留言同发问，记得点赞、订阅，并同身边对粤语有兴趣嘅朋友分享本节目。As always, we welcome your questions and suggestions. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe, and please share with any friends who are interested in Cantonese.